HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. You're listening to Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curd. Hosted by Ann Saxelby. You're listening to Cutting the Curtain, hosted by Ann Saxelby, broadcast live to the Cosmos on the Heritage Radio Network. Good Monday afternoon slash evening to everyone, and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Ann Saxelby. My co-host and producer is Sophie Schlesinger. Hello. And uh, we have Jack Inslee and Carlos Salguaro in the booth, making sure computers work right. Thanks, guys. And tagging, <laughs> and tagging all the tagging. information so you guys can search and figure out what the heck we're talking about. Yeah. So today we are very pleased to have back on the show for the second time, um, Paul Kinstead, who is um, a cheese uh, scholar and an author of a book called Cheese and Culture, A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization, which is due to be put out by Chelsea Green this spring. I believe it's in April. Um, and uh, so we are going to talk about the book and uh, just learn about all of Paul's last five years researching and, and putting yeah. this book together. Um, Paul, are you with us? I sure am. Yep. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. It's great to have you back. Yeah. Great to be here. Um, so, cheese and culture, 11,000 years of mankind's interaction with cheese and dairy. That is a, a very uh, daunting undertaking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to agree. <laughs> well, I, I didn't know what I was getting into <laughs> 10 years ago when I started this project. Um, it, it was daunting. It, it is daunting, and there's so much more to be done. This is just scratching the surface, to be quite frank, but it's a start. Wow. Wow. So can you tell us a little bit about the impetus for this book and your, and your sort of uh, studies that led you to want to do this project? Yeah, well, it, it really began 10 years ago when I was writing my first book, American Farmstead Cheese, which was a, a, you know, a technical manual for cheesemakers, di distilling science down to user-friendly principles. 
And uh, it was really almost an afterthought to write a couple of chapters for that book that, that provided context for this new generation of artisan farmstead traditional cheesemakers that had just arisen over the past couple of decades at that point in America. And, and you know, the question was, why, why do we need another cheese technology book? There's lots of great books out there. And the reason was because these new cheesemakers are so, such a different audience. And so where does this audience come from? Why, why are we even talking about traditional cheesemaking in an American context? And so I thought, well, I'd better put some context in terms of history, a chapter on you know, basic development of cheeses in Europe and then what happened in America to set the stage for this science textbook that I wrote. And as I started writing it, it, you know, the months were going by, and I'm doing research on chapters one and two, and, and I'm running out of time. You know, I've, I've got a year to write this science textbook, and I haven't even started the science yet because I'm doing the history. <laughs> it is so fascinating and so, so broad and expansive and daunting that I just had to stop the history part of it where I was and say, all right, you know, this is the best I can do for American farmstead cheese, but I will go back when all this is all this is over with, and I'll take a deep breath and to take some time to develop a course at the University of Vermont that I can that I can really develop cheese history and use science and and the science of cheese and technology to to begin to interpret cheese history. And it really, the idea was to was to use history and culture as the hook to get. Students who might not take a you know a, a four credit course on cheese science and technology, but that wanted to learn about cheese history and cheese culture, and I could get them as a captive audience and teach them a little bit about cheese science and and chemistry and technology, and maybe inspire a few of those students to to uh, change directions career wise and get into 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 the areas that I'm really interested in, which is cheese science and technology. That's so, a that that uh, I, I I taught that course for the first time uh, in 2005, and it was it was well received. Continued to develop it and refine it and made it into a permanent offering, and continue to teach it to this day. And and that course is Cheese and Culture, which I teach in the fall. But I need a textbook for that. You know, I can't cram in 11,000 years' worth of history <laughs> yeah. in, in 14 weeks' semester. It's just impossible. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I'm always rushed. <laughs> <laughs> it really needs to be a two-semester sequence or probably a multi-sequence. Yeah. But, but um, so that became then the, 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 uh, the impetus for writing a book that... Um, you know, for my course, but the book, as I really began writing it and took a sabbatical leave a couple of years ago, took on a life of its own because the the more you delve into this material, the the it just it's like an onion with endless layers, and trying to reconstruct history from tiny little fragments and nothing linking them together, you know, and trying to create a narrative that actually makes sense where everything follows from everything that happened before is uh... that's the idea i don't know whether we'll ever achieve it perfectly but but that's the hope is that this book will begin to get other scholars thinking about you know really reconstructing this wonderful story it is an incredible story 
And now I feel like that's a good uh, sort of segue to talk about the structure of the book. Um, can you tell us a little bit, you know, out of this vast topic, how did you choose to organize your thoughts and, uh, and why did you choose to organize it in a certain way? That's a great question because when you, when you take on a, you know, a complex writing assignment, you have to organize, you have to have a plan. Uh, at least in in this kind of writing, it's not creative writing. It's 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 you know linking everything together. And I think sequentially, I I, I do not I do not multitask well. I I do one thing, and then I go on to the next, and then the next one at a time. So I approach this as as simply periods of time, ages of of prehistory and history, mm-hmm. and chronological. And then, you know, the, the real challenge is going from these, these great ages of human civilization and linking them together so that, that it's not, um, um, you know, isolated events that cheesemakers were involved with in, in different times, but that everything links together. So we begin with, and I kept having to push, push back further and further as I you know, started looking at this. So, so, you know, when did cheesemaking begin? All right, well... 7,000 B.C., 6,500 B.C., but why did it begin then? Well, you go back to 9,500 B.C., but why did agriculture begin then? Well, then you've got to go back to 35,000 B.C., and the whole, you know, the climate change and, and uh, the, the whole, you know, set of extraordinary circumstances that allowed agriculture to develop in the first place that then allowed animals to be domesticated, which then allowed milk to be harvested, which then allowed cheese to be made, and, you know, so the... The more you, the more you, you, you ask those questions, the more you have to go back, 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 and uh, so <laughs> you know, I have to start two hundred thousand years ago with, yeah, the, and with the, the start of the, the human species as we know it in terms of the anatomically modern man, and and that's that's the context for this incredible period in human history or prehistory. And jumping off that a little bit, could you touch a little bit more on how maybe the the scientific research that you had done influenced, you know, what you could possibly infer about the history? You talk about how in the first book that was all about science, you know, you kind of realized during that process that there was all this history that you wanted to delve into. Was there anything from the science that, you know, helped you in your historical research? Oh, all, all the time, because all, all that we have often, um, particularly in the, the early early eras and even into the the written you know when when writing comes into place and we have some written records it's still little fragments little bits of information about cheese or a cheesemaker um, you know or or cheese being being uh, um, shipped by maritime trade but there's no descriptive narrative you know, or you know what were these cheeses um, who were the cheese? You know, what, it's just it's just little bits of information. So, for example, if if you think about the first maritime shipment of you know commercial trade in cheese, about about uh, 1200 BC, as far as I can tell, where where there's written records that that uh, in in uh, Ugarit, which is which is in now a coastal city that was that is in now what is known as Syria. And, and trade uh, between this city and Ashdod in, in, in Israel, what is now Israel. And, and you know, we have these, these, these cuneiform records that, that indicate cheese was part of you know, this, this vast trade that was going on during, by the end of the Bronze Age, 1200 B.C., so then the question is, all right, well, so what? I mean, what, first of all, why, what, what were these cheeses? What kind of cheese would be 
amenable to, to maritime trade in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then, then the question is, well, what, what kind of shipping containers would, would the cheese have had to have been shipped in? Um, and what kind of cheese technically can be made in that part of the world that would, that would fit well into the shipping containers that were available and that would be really, really exciting, you know, sort of high-end cheeses that would justify the very risky and very expensive process of shipping in, in those right. days. It was only really value-added foods that were, that were you know, involved in this maritime trade. So this must have been a really, really neat cheese, an exciting cheese that commanded a high price in the marketplace, probably for the elite, aristocratic elite. Uh, of of Syria and and beyond, and uh, it had to be shipped either in what became the standard um, um, shipping container of the time, the, the Canaanite jar, a pottery jar jar that the that the Canaanites in the region of of Ashdod and what is now southern Israel uh, developed about this time, or or these cheeses would have been shipped in probably um, um, woven sacks. Uh, as as grain was bulky bulky mm. foodstuffs or 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 woven baskets. So what what you know given those two choices, which one is more likely? Well, in the in the in the the, the Near East, that whole region stretching from really from the Aegean and Greece all the way you know around Turkey and down into the Levant, the you know, Lebanon and and Israel, and and down into Egypt, the 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 white brined cheese, the most well-known of which in that family is, is feta, that, that, that type of, of cheese, is, is a natural for clay jars. Um, that In the making of that very simple cheese, which is made ubiquitously all over that region to mm-hmm. this day, and has been for a long, long time, that, that it's, uh, it's a type of cheese that naturally forms its own brine if it's packed into a into a, uh, a container like that, the, 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 the heavy salting draws the way out. And it wouldn't have taken, you know, a lot of experience once those, those clay jars were available to put cheese in and store them to realize that all that salty whey that comes out actually acts as a preservative and enables that cheese to be transformed over time into something that is really, really, uh, you know, dynamite in terms of flavor and aroma at a time when food was incredibly bland. They didn't have the kind of spices and condiments um, that, that we take for granted. And so, so I would argue that this type of, this, this first example that we know of, of maritime trade, was probably a white brine cheese in a Canaanite jar, and it was really good. Hmm. Yeah. And I can't prove that. Now, this <laughs> all, you know, nobody can prove it, um, sure. but it's a starting point. The other alternative is, is, a, is, a, is a rinded cheese, and it's really hard in the hot, dry environment of that part of the world to make, you know, that kind of, of, a, of, a, of a, a rinded cheese, you know, a pecorino-type cheese that, that across the Mediterranean and in, in Sicily and, and, and Italy are, are ubiquitous. Hmm. Um, I think they're much less likely candidates because it's a lot tougher to make them in the climate of the southern Mediterranean. And probably tougher to transport as well, because you were saying... And you know, tougher the, to transport, I, right. I, yeah. So my guess, and it's only a guess, is that these, these you know, this first example of cheese in maritime trade was, was, uh, was, was the sort of so-called feta type, and it, it became ubiquitous, and right up until the 20th century, that cheese was transported in clay jars all over the Aegean and all over the region, uh, until wooden barrels and then metal containers replaced 
the the old Canaanite jar, basically. Wow. And so to further the scientific thing just a little bit, so I mean, and this was part of the book that I thought was really fascinating. Um, you actually do, um, uh, you know, quote people who have studied the actual um, residues on this pottery. So oh, yeah. you, ha, can you tell us a little bit about that? Because, you know, just knowing, first of all, that the pottery was used to transport a dairy product is a pretty mm-hmm. amazing thing. You can find a shard of pottery and, and infer that kind of information. Thank goodness that just over the last decade, the analytical capability to begin to, to do sort of forensic uh, analysis of, of organic residues embedded in, in the fabric of, of ancient pottery has, has come into its own. Um, so that, that there's you know, new analytical capabilities for taking these old artifacts that have been dug out of the ground you know, from 10,000 years ago or 7,000 years ago and, and literally uh, fingerprinting the organic residues, and particularly in this case, the lipid, the fat residues, and 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 pinpointing what the source of the fat was that was in the product that was placed in in the pottery in the in the container so many eons ago, and um, it, it, you know, it's radioisotope type um, fingerprinting, looking at carbon and the way that that carbon, when it's used to produce fat in the animal. The, the 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 carbon isotopes that that predominate in milk fat in milk synthesis the synthesis of milk fat is is different from from the fat in animal carcasses and mm. there's a you know complex physiology that that is the basis for that but but that that carbon isotope fingerprint then allows one to to make some pretty pretty clear cut um um um, um Conclusions in terms of is this is this you know animal fat is it is it is it lard is it you know um, um, carcass fat or is it is it milk fat and 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 the, the methodology is is still unfolding and there's it's not a perfect um, methodology but I think it's it's well enough established now and and there's still some one one of the areas that I think I'd love to see some dairy scientists work with these these you know this group that developed this this analytical methodology because. The the uh, the developers did sort of a what I would characterize as, as a, an ingenious but quick and dirty study to try and determine whether what was in the pottery was was liquid milk or or a processed dairy product like butter or 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 cheese which is mm. concentrated in terms of its lipid source and the the you know what I would call preliminary results pretty clearly indicated that it looks like these lipid residues that we're using as as fingerprints, isotopic fingerprints, become impregnated in in pottery if if the lipids are in a, a concentrated enough form, like in cheese or butter, but not in a liquid. Um, and so so it, you know the the preliminary information suggests that when you get these residues in these in these pots, it was it was a processed dairy product like butter and cheese. From a more concentrated I would thing. love to see some some really good studies done to to corroborate that model and and uh, give us an even more powerful analytical capability. Now uh, that actually leads me to a do- another question. Um, you know, because I, I know that you had mentioned that uh, specifically in the book, but. Um, do, what are some other areas that you um, yeah. think 
could benefit like what are some other academic areas that you would like to see further pursued um with regard to cheese and dairy and and man's history that aren't currently being pursued well um just getting teams together to to uh to to reconstruct you know know, i've tried to lay out this this thumbnail sketch of of of, uh, of a long narrative um, and it's based on on incomplete information but there's you know for example in the in the the uh, the early period of writing the sumerian akkadian hittite um, eras where where cheese making really came of age and rennet coagulated cheese making really really developed there's a, there's a lot of of uh, work that linguists can you know have done already you know tremendous um, work to decipher and try and translate what these you know cuneiform records actually mean, and a lot of times it's very very complicated to decipher exactly what the what these folks who are scratching out on these clay tablets what what they're actually saying, hmm. and and if, if you know it's usually linguists working as linguists, not with with dairy scientists who might have something to you know can look at at, at these these ancient texts. And look at it with a different set of eyes, and say, you know, "I wonder if, if actually that's that's what it means, because that makes sense in the context of cheesemakers. Um, this is about cheese; we know that, but but you know, you may not think that makes sense, but but I think that makes perfect sense as a cheesemaker. Mm-hmm. And and you know, begin to, to 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 flesh out, you know, some of these ancient um, artifacts of writing, what they actually meant, and and to. Get a better picture of what was going on in in you know Sumerian times. This this incredible period when when man's first civilization rises up out of nothing. Uh, um, we you know if if cheese can help us to understand the origin of civilization a little bit more clearly, it, it helps us understand who we are as a as a, a species as a as human beings. And I think that's I mean to think that cheese can help inform that process to me is 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 just extraordinary if you get you know groups of scholars with complementary expertise together so that's one way uh, you know a, a cheese scientist could potentially work with scholars in a very different field i don't know anything about linguistics um, <laughs> but i do know something about cheese climatologists you know and the whole the whole area of reconstructing um, natural history and climate you know climate oh, yeah. change has has been just uh, yeah. instrumental that was fascinating to me the part about um you know when uh the, for the, f- talking about transhumans when mm-hmm. the when the tree line first receded you know uh, in these alpine mountain ranges b- yeah. way back when i mean uh, that climatology is a, a factor that uh i didn't even you know really put together with cheese making that's utterly and completely fascinating neither did i and, and it was it was uh, it was it was um startling when I, I started having to go down that pathway because you know you're trying to recon all right we're all this all this this alpine cheese making and dairying you, I mean, you're clearly in roman times lots of written records it was well developed but how far back did it go and what was it that you have you have the neolithic movement out of the near east out of out of the fertile crescent five you know, 6,000 BC, 5,500 BC, and and these peoples bring their 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 dairying with them. But then there's this this period, you know, between when they living in the in the river valleys of the Rhine and and the Danube and and the, and the plains, when when they move up into the into the Alpine regions and and create this 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 
sustainable system that has carried through right into the 21st century, this, this transhumance and, and, and alpine cheesemaking. And, and how did that, what, what was, there's a reason why people moved in, in the course of history, why they were forced to, to move in and out and, and to different locations. And a lot of it, in, in, in certain periods, was related to climate change. And the more, you know, I tried to, to reconstruct the, this early Neolithic movement into the, into the Alpine regions, the more the climate change element began, began to loom large. And I don't know anything about climate change, so I had to start reading. Yeah, I mean, that's of, very you know, timely. Yeah. The, the volumes and volumes of stuff, and I, I hope I got it right. I, I, I say right up front in my, the preface to the book that I've done the best. I, I'm a cheese scientist, and, I, and I've tried to access the best scholarship available. About, but you know, any, any misinterpretations, I take sole responsibility because <laughs> I'm a cheese scientist. But I think I'm right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> no, it's it's really it's all completely fascinating. Um, but I want to get back to real quick. You were talking about Sumerian times and how human civilization just kind of you know popped up as, as in, in at least in in sort of more organized uh, city states and things like that in a way that hadn't happened before. Um, and can you tell us a little bit um, about how cheese played a part in Sumerian culture? Who ate it? Why did they eat it? And uh, and as far as it was used and uh, religious rites and things like that. This is something I, I had no, I, I had no, no pre, pre, uh, pre exposure. To, you know, this, this came as as a bombshell when when I just uh, started seeing references. You know, you do you do literature searches on cheese and and you know, various keywords and started started you know coming up with with uh, this this goddess Inanna. The, 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 the goddess, the, the queen of heaven or lady of heaven, the, 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 the guardian of the, the, the storehouse, the, the one who oversees the agricultural seasons, and, the, you know, like the central goddess in the Sumerian mythology that, uh, that, that is essential to keep, to keep happy, basically, as a human race, because she, she is the one who oversees the seasons and the harvest. And, um, and, and cheese keeps coming up as... as, as Related to Inanna, and and uh, you know, going back in, into into uh, the early early development of Sumerian civilization, when the first really big city state, Uruk, arises um, in in southern Iraq, and and the mythology upon which Uruk is based is is heavily. Influenced by the Inanna mythology, and and it turns out that that you know pivotal in the Inanna mythology is 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 the fact that she chooses a a human husband who is a shepherd. Um, there was a, there was competition between the farmer and the shepherd, and the shepherd finally wins her heart mm-hmm. by by boasting about how much cream and butter and cheese he can make, and, and, uh, and she falls for it. Um, she's a smart lady. Yeah. She's, she's a smart lady. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they get married, and, and, um, and as part of their, their sort of uh, you know, early marriage um, um, agreements, post-nuptial, I guess, would, would be a, a term, um, and, and Anna says to her husband, Demusi, that... that um, you know, I will. I will take care of your storehouses. You will have abundance. I, you know, relax. Everything's going to be great. The harvests are going to be terrific. But here, here's the, here's the, uh, here's the catch. I want you to keep me happy. 
with lots of cheese and butter and cream. And, um, and so you, you, you see this immediately in, 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 in the, the Uruk, the, 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 um, you know, the, the massive architecture that develops out of nothing, the, the temple architecture that dominates this new city-state, that, um, that, that in the, in the, 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 the clay proto-writings, because writing hadn't even been, been developed yet, that, that um, you know, keeping Inanna happy with, with cheese and butter, as well as lots of other agricultural produce, as part of the religious rites that ensured the harvest, that becomes institutionalized and becomes central to, to the, the ruling priestly class and their, their, their collaborators in the secular government, that, that they have to keep Inanna happy. And that means that they have to have sacred flocks of goats and sheep and cows that produce milk. And it, it creates this, this whole infrastructure of, of, um, of administration to oversee and contract out with shepherds to make cheese, to have this constant supply of cheese and butter coming in to keep this lady happy. And... Uh, and, and one, it, it gets further institutionalized with, with a, another layer of mythology called the, the, the sacred marriage, where every year, this is like the, the national holiday of, of, of Sumer, <laughs> the, the, uh, every year the, 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 uh, the, the ruling king, whoever the monarch is of the city, marries Inanna symbolically, probably a, a priestess stood in as, uh, for Inanna. And, um, and, and this... this this um, special relationship between what started with the original king, the Musi in the, in, the, in the mythology, now gets conferred to every king thereafter that, that Inanna blesses and smiles upon and empowers the king with almost godlike powers. And that seems to be, as far as I can tell, and I'm sure I'm going to get emails from historians telling me I'm wrong, but <laughs> I can't find any other, other earlier example where, where there's this, this shared ideology of an entire city-state that, that, that um, the ruling elite are linked directly to a god, that, you know, are, are vested with power because of, by virtue of their capacity, to, their relationship to, the, to, to, to the, you know, the, the deity, the patron saint, the patron, patron god of the city. And it becomes a pattern that... that um, you know the the role of religion in 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 uh, social structure and in in power structures that um it was kind of a it seems like it was kind of a you know it was one of the most ingenious inventions of the aristocracy just yeah. you know linking that linkage with the gods you know you automatically become uh seen as a very you know it just it, that what better way to unite people you know what better what be, what better way to unite people and 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 this this city you know the, the sumerian and it wasn't just york it became a whole group of city states that followed the example and and this then lasted for a couple thousand years you know that this this confederation of city states that that largely um you know, continued this this type of mythology in various forms and and the sacred marriage rite becomes very very uh, common throughout other Sumerian city-states, and, and sacrifices of, of of cheese and butter become, I mean, big time, big time, you know, big part of the economy. And and um, you know, one of I, one, I think historians agree that w- one of the factors that that is is critical to the development of this very complex society 
where there's there's a ruling elite and there's organization administration and and um, you know all the public works projects that have to all the coordination that has to take place in order to build great big temples and irrigation systems that, that you know they had a very sophisticated centrally organized farming system irrigation system all of that requires a ruling elite and people willing to to willing to work hard, well, <laughs> willing to work right and yeah. and religious um, ideology plays into that um <laughs> And I th- and I feel like you know it's funny I w- I could honestly I f- talk about this for the next yeah. like seven hours. It's like um, a history of the world <laughs> just through uh, it is the through the lens of yeah. cheese. But well, if we can jump ahead just a little bit, you know, I find that really interesting. That you know, in the beginning in the Sumerian states, you have this relationship between Inanna and the um, the ruling class, and then you know, if you fast forward up, you know, to medieval times or a little bit beyond, which I feel like is where you know that that that's the lineage that we have the most direct uh access to in terms mm-hmm. of our cheese making traditions it's the same thing you were talking about uh you know the medieval um manners with uh, the lords and the aristocracy and then um you know the the peasants that would work the land would then make the cheese which would eventually make its way to the lord who would which right. would make its way to the king and so it just kind of became it went from being you know the, the cheese to the this idea of the god inanna to actually then just becoming cheese directly to the king and kind of, you know, having this mm. elaborate uh, system of, of social structure and hierarchy behind it. Um, nothing ever changes. Nothing new under the <laughs> <Yeah>. sun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty unbelievable. Um, so can you, uh, well, I have, a, I have a question, which is maybe a silly question, but if you had to, um, you know, place yourself into this cheese history of mankind, what era would you have most liked to live in and why? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I'm a Myers-Briggs ponderer. I, 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 am, I, I am an incredibly analytical, off-the-chart person who takes a long time to answer any substantive question. Then that's a very good question. That's we can have another question. show about yeah. that. <laughs> um, hmm. Uh, what era? That, I, I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you... I'll, I'll let you inside a little bit of Paul Kinstead, right? <laughs> and this, this may be not not the answer that that you expected. But I, I the era that that interests me the most personally, and this is what made this book more than just a professional venture for me. That I mean, I, I love cheese science and I love cheese history, and it's been wonderful to to have that marriage of the two. It, it has been like paradise for me. But what has also driven me, what has been absolutely critical, is is my own. Um, great interest in spirituality, human spirituality, and my own religious faith, my own, my own, my own faith, and so I would have to say that that the the early Christian era and some of the some of the the, the things that were going on uh, in 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 uh, you know the early Christian era in, in the Roman times and 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 the way cheese was beginning to influence. Um, the Christian Church. That is something I had no idea that, that we'd get into, but I just found, found um, you know, that era fascinating. And, and it, for, for me personally, I, I really, um, I would have to say I would love to, to, to live through that era and um, as both a chief scientist and, and in my case, as a, as a, as a Christian. Well, you know that's fascinating because um, on the show we did previous to this one, um, we were talking a l- we were talking a little bit about monks. Um, mm-hmm. We were actually yep. interviewing people who have a store in Oklahoma called Forward Foods, and 
there is a monastery in Oklahoma where they still make um, these traditional sheep's milk cheeses. And, uh, you know, there are monks in uh, Jessamani, yeah. Kentucky that are still making Trappist style cheeses. And, yeah. you know, that yeah. lineage is still very much alive. It's really fascinating to see, you know, I, I agree. I just think that that uh, uh, passing on of tradition and knowledge that began way back then is still influencing these oh, wonderful, absolutely. this wonderful rebirth of cheese that we're getting to experience in this country. Um, it's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. So actually, well, that's funny. That's another question that I had. Um, I was going to ask who are some of the biggest champions of traditional cheese making? And I guess the monks, you know, they're, yeah. they're really right up there. <laughs> well, you know, the, but the funny thing is that, that, uh, or not funny, haha, but, but the, the odd or, or the, uh, the unexpected thing, at least for me, uh, you know, I had long heard about the, the monks and, and they were great cheesemakers. And indeed they were in, in the very early uh, medieval period when they had, when they were still making their own, you know, producing their own food. They were, they were largely self-sufficient in the very early years. Um, but it didn't take long before, before, you know, the major monastic houses acquired enormous amounts of land. They were you know, you read the old records, and it's absolutely fascinating how how the the aristocracy were encouraged to hand over man. You know, the the, the aristocracy would, would the upper aristocracy would typically own many manors, um, not just a single manor, but they'd have a whole portfolio of manors you know, scattered across the countryside, and they were they were encouraged to to donate to give manors to support the local monastic house. And so monastic houses acquired you know, incredible amounts of land over time. The aristocracy, their incentive was, was to, to uh, basically be assured of eternal life. And you, you can see this in the deeds. You know, it's incredible. You know, I, I, I King uh, Ethel, Ethel, blah, 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 do hereby you know, give up my, my manor and all these hides of land uh, in deference to my soul and the souls of my you know, my great uncle and aunt and, 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 and brother and sister-in-law. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and so, the, so the, the, the monastic houses became very wealthy very quickly, many yeah. of them. And they, they, the monks stopped making their own cheese in, in many cases very early on because they had, they had you know, this, this whole um, empire of, of manors supplying. Typically it would be a, you know, a fortnight of food. Each manor would, would supply you know, 20, roughly 20 days of, of food a year, and they would take, the manors would take turn. And, and, um, and there was you know, quite, quite uh, you know, an abundance of food flowing into the, the monastic house. And the cheesemaking was done on the manors. And, and you know, eventually the monasteries became incredible incredible managers of, of their monastic holdings and the, the oversight of the cheesemaking operation by the, the later Middle Ages, by 1200, 1300, particularly in England, they, the management techniques that they were using were absolutely astonishing. I mean, they, they were like, like um, what, what we do now in terms of, of monitoring cheese yield and looking at pasture quality and predicting how much cheese you ought to get and how much butter, um, you know, for for this time of year because of the pasture quality and it was all about economics it was it was absolutely astonishing well and so and so in that sense traditional cheese making was was changing into into really market driven cheese making which then became our tradition in the 20 20th century 21st century 
but it was it was not tradition back then. It was it was innovative, you know, uh, market driven, um, um, profit motive cheese making back then. Now it's traditional, you know, and the great English cheeses that we we so love were born out of that out of that market driven mentality. You know, it's really funny listening to you talk about the monastic holdings and uh, and how you know um, rich people would be encouraged to give up their land in exchange for uh, you know uh, eternal life. Maybe that <laughs> we were talking, and at the back of your book, it talks a little bit about you know what is the economics of our cheese making, where yeah. you have to pay thirty dollars a pound in this mm. country right now for a slice of you know a slice of great cheese, and maybe there's something with the uh, they already offer tax abatements for rich people <laughs> to turn their land into farmland. I mean, maybe we can come up with some sort of scheme so we can get more cheesemakers out there on the land right. and yeah. get the cheese to in people's mouths for a bit less money. I don't know. We can Well, uh, that's, you know, that's that's the whole the whole, you know, question looming over the the renaissance of traditional cheesemaking is these cheeses by definition they're they're handmade if they're if they're really traditional. They are expensive. They are labor intensive. They will cost a lot more. There's no way around that. Absolutely yeah. no way. And there never will be a way around that. So the question then is, who's going to pay, and will it be a greater percentage of middle-class Americans that, that reallocate their the money that they can reallocate and, and buy less of something else to spend more on, on you know, good cheeses? And can we grow that, that segment of the population that's willing to do that because it's worth it to them? Or, you know, Europe tried for a long time, and, and the vestiges are still there of, of, of public investment and subsidies and, you know, all sorts of, of, um, of, of, of benefits to help traditional cheesemakers. In a global economy, that's really tough. You know, the subsidies and all that sort of mm-hmm. approach doesn't, doesn't uh, you know, it's very hard to justify. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so what, what can we do as a country if we really care about traditional cheeses? Um, my my take on it in the short run is to make these cheeses to help the public understand why they're special. And one of the things, you know, this is another 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 reason that when I was writing American Farmstead Cheese and writing these chapters on history, I'm thinking, you know, what in the world am I doing? I'm a I'm a cheese scientist. You know, I, I want this context, but this should, should this really be in there? And then I thought. The reason why these guys, the, the, these guys, these, these, the wonderful folks out there who support artisan cheese, the reason, the reason why they're doing it is not, it, it, it's, it's in large part because they're fantastic cheeses, sensory-wise, you know, flavor, texture, presentation. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's a lot more. You talk to folks who really, you know, are into traditional cheeses and they're into you know, philosophical values. They're into, you know, um, animal welfare issues. They're into, into the working landscape. They're, 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 they're you know, they're, they're projecting values onto these cheeses. It's more than just the cheese. It, it, the, the cheese carries with it the weight of something that's important to them. And I think the more people understand history, this wonderful history of cheese and the way cheese has interacted with, with the human species right from the beginning, um, the, the more traditional cheese will become more special and it will just add value to these cheeses and give folks another excuse to pay whatever it takes to keep these cheeses alive. 
Yeah, it's absolutely. Well, we we are you're preaching to the choir. Yeah. We are totally. Uh, <laughs> I figured I was, <laughs> but I hope I hope uh, I I do agree. I do agree. There's it's so much and culture. In it. It's cheese and culture. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. That's the name of the book: Cheese and Culture: <laughs> A History of Cheese and Its Place in Western Civilization by Paul Kinstead. Uh The publication date I did find for sure. It is going to be out in April 2012, um, and I believe we are going to be uh, doing some sort of an event here in New York uh, to celebrate the publication of the book so um so stay tuned you can stay join tuned, our yeah. our email list at uh saxelbeecheese.com or you can also uh get updates at heritageradionetwork.com and uh and paul if people want to find out more about your work do you maintain um a website or should people contact uh you via uvm or, or what's the best way for people to learn more about the work that you do yeah, I'm, I'm in the Stone Age IT wise. I don't, I don't have a website. Um, Good for I, I, you. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, anyone can, you know, contact me by by email, and uh, I'll be happy to try and try and uh, try and respond. Um, and your course well, at the at the university, uh, can you, uh, if anyone's interested in learning more about that, can you uh, give us some information about how they would uh, how they would go about learning about it? Well, you, um, it, it's it's um, a course offered in the Department of Nutrition and Food Sciences, my 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 department. It's it's uh, you know a normal undergraduate course. There's no prerequisites, um, but you know so I draw from students all over the university. But it's it's um, it's it's you know um, degree degree students who are taking it. It's not uh, at this point not a continuing ed course that would be you know sort of separate and out and and available to the the general public as a, a continuing ed course. Now we're, we're, you know, I'm thinking about through the through our the Vermont Institute for Artisan Cheese, um, developing some some course material that would be really for the for the general public. Yeah, that um, would be amazing. And then Anna and I can come audit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see. If 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 there's good reaction to the book, then I'll I'll have the the confidence to to do some development. If if uh, if it flops completely, well, so be it. I, I gave it my best. <laughs> hey, well, now we, yeah, we think we think the world of it. It is a truly truly fascinating and inspiring read, and um, everyone th- should get ready. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's, it's a must read for anyone who loves cheese. So, thank you so much again for for being on the show again. And uh, I hope you know I hope to have you back again in the future. And uh, and I would recommend everybody uh, who listens to this show to get a copy of Cheese and Culture when it comes out because it is an absolutely fascinating book. Well, it's always a pleasure talking with you guys. I you, uh, I think we're kindred spirits, and so it's. Uh, the words flow easily. <laughs> that is a, from my that, end. That is a Probably very big easily. compliment. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, thank you again, and uh, stick with us uh, next Monday for another episode of Cutting You're the Curd. Bye. To Cutting the Curd, hosted by Ann Saxelby. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.